You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn to Genesis 41. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 40 this morning. Verses 1 through 40. Genesis 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh woke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on, on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all of the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation each to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up by seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows They came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt, but after them there will rise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and let him... Let him uh, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all of the food and all these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Heavenly Father, we look to you, O Father, in this hour, and we ask, Father, that you would be pleased to instruct us, to teach us, to open your word to our hearts, to open our, our hearts to your word, O Father, to do this work of taking your truth, O Father, and giving us understanding of it and applying it to our lives, O Father. So, Lord, we look to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, it's an understatement if I say that life is full of highs and lows, is it not? I mean, it's about an understatement, huh? It's full of ups, it's full of downs, and really of the many gems that we find here in what I'll call the Joseph narratives, that is these verses that we've been studying here all the way through to the end of Genesis, of the many gems that we find there, I mean, one of the great gems is how the Lord reveals to us how we are to handle these ups and downs. I mean, we can see this all over the page, pages of this narrative. Uh, it, it, is that the main thing that the Lord is teaching here? No, I would say it's the main thing. But uh, it is certainly derivative of the main thing. And it's a wonderful little gem for us. Um, in our lifetime, uh, some of us are, you know, I would probably say that all of us are going to find ourselves in circumstances that we don't like. Some of us may even find ourselves in circumstances that are dreadful and awful. That's just the way that it is. Uh, suffering will come into our lives. Suffering will go. And again, suffering varies from person to person, doesn't it? Some people are healthy for 90 years and, and uh, pretty much healthy their entire lives. Uh, others are just plagued with health problems every day of their lives. Uh, suffering varies. But suffering will find us all uh, eventually, if it hasn't already. And what about the future? You know, I, it's been said by sociologists and it's been said by historians that future historians are going to look at our age and call our age an age of anxiety. Uh, some of you have probably read that before. Uh, but all of us can say, well, yeah, yeah, I guess that sounds about right. Um, anxiety, a lot, of, a lot of anxiety is 
is in predictions. If you do any counseling at all and you counsel people, they're very anxious. You'll discover they make predictions and their predictions are always the worst possible scenario. Um, 90% of the time, it's not the worst possible scenario and that's how you counsel people who are always making the worst possible scenario. 90% of the time, it's not that. Uh, every time a storm comes, there's not going to be an F5 tornado with it. Uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, but it is possible, once in a while, you will counter one of those. Um, predictions over the future, you know. The future has a major role in that. Uh, and, and even prosperity. I mean, in the midst of all this anxiety and suffering and circumstances and everything, we are the m- most prosperous people on the planet. Uh, so prosperity actually is, a, is also another trial for us. I, I mentioned all these things at the start because in our text here, I want to try to address each of these as we go along. I want to start really by explaining the text. Let's explain it to text. And as we, as we look through it together, we're going to start to see some of these things unravel. If you look at verse 1, there you, you see we have a time frame. I la- personally like these time frames. We don't always get them. When we do get them, I like them. I, I don't know if you're like that. Uh, when you're reading Scripture, sometimes you can read a sentence or two later and you're, you're decades in the future. And if you're not keeping your eyes open for that, you, you, you'll kind of forget that fact. But here we have after two whole years. In other words, from verse 23 of chapter 40 to verse 1 of chapter 41, two whole years go by. Two whole years. Well, two whole years from what? Two whole years from when the cup bearer was reinstated into his office before Pharaoh. Now, I'm looking around, I'm thinking most of us were probably here a couple of weeks ago, but for the benefit of anyone who wasn't, last week we were in the dungeon with Joseph, or two weeks ago, rather. We were in the dungeon with Joseph, weren't we? And for the sake of just a quick uh, thumbnail review, uh, Joseph has been uh, sold by his brothers to a caravan that takes him to Egypt, where he was bought and purchased by Potiphar, things were going great under Potiphar until Potiphar's wife put her eyes on him and began to try to seduce him. He resisted all of these uh, efforts, which infuriated her. So she claimed that he was attempting to force himself on her, which led to his imprisonment. Uh, Wonderful circumstances, huh? Now he's in prison, but... Each along, each every step of the way, the narrative has been telling us that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him in Potiphar's house. The Lord is with him in the dungeon. And the prison keeper actually sees that, boy, we got a really trustworthy fellow here, and he puts him in charge of everything. And two of Pharaoh's officers slipped up. They did something. We're not sure what they did, but the baker, the cupbearer, they end up in jail with, with Joseph. And the Lord afflicts them with these two dreams, and Joseph is in charge of these two individuals. He notices that their, their faces are long, something's troubling him. He asks, and they each, the cupbearer and the baker, tell Joseph their respective dreams. And Joseph interprets them. He tells the cupbearer, hey, you know, in three days, you're going to be back in business. You have nothing to worry about. But when you're back in business and you're before Pharaoh, remember me, you know, put a word in so you can get me out of here. Uh, Baker doesn't get such good news, does he? In three days, you're going to be hanged. Um, he probably would have been better off without that information. But um, 
That's where we find that brings us to the very end of chapter 40. Now, two whole years have gone by. Two whole years from what? Two whole years since the cupbearer has been put back in, has been reinstated in his office. Does that make sense? Now, two whole years. Where's Joseph been for those two whole years? I mean, we go from verse 23 to verse 1. Joseph endured two whole years in prison. Hold on to that thought. Now, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreams. He dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now, I want to turn your attention how often the Nile is brought up in these first, these initial verses. In Pharaoh's dream, he's standing by the Nile. There came up out of the Nile, see that a second time, seven cows, attractive and plump. They were fed in the reed grass. Behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of what? The Nile. After them stood by the other cows. They're all standing on the bank of the what? The Nile. I draw your attention to this because in this ancient Egyptian culture, everything was about the Nile. Without the Nile River flowing through Egypt, what do you have left? The desert, right? So everything was about the Nile. Everything was about the timing of the flood stage of the Nile. The ancient Egyptian people worshipped the Nile. They gave it the god name Hap. Some of you are aware of that. Uh, they worshipped the Nile as if it, they deified it. They worshipped as if it was a god. Uh, when it was in flood stage, they typically called it Happy. H-A, I think it's H-A-P-Y. Uh, Hap, uh, normal, and happy in flood stage. Um, there was a timing thing from what I understand. Uh, I've never been an ancient Egyptian farmer, so I'm going by what I've read and studied. But apparently the, the timing between the flood stage and what we're going to see here later, the eastern wind, which I'll talk about in a minute, was very, it was very tricky uh, between this flood stage time and the eastern winds. Um, this is a culture of farmers. They're dependent on the Nile. They're dependent on the moisture of the Nile. They're dependent on all this stuff for their crops. They're, they're an agrarian society, an agricultural society. They're a society of farmers, however you want to put it. And uh, their economic stability and social stability is based on the Nile in their minds. And I think it's significant that when God gives these dreams to Pharaoh, he's positioning these dreams where? By the Nile. Which I think, I think it's safe for us to conclude that what the Lord is doing is he's putting divine significance to this dream. I think there's more than that going on, but let's just hold on to that for a moment. Uh, there's divine significance to this already. Now, what is the dream about? Well, it's about seven cows that come out. They're very healthy. They're attractive. We're told they're plump. They're fed. And then behind them come seven other cows that are ugly and thin, presumably emaciated by starvation. They're starving. They're, 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 they look like they shouldn't even be alive. Uh, and then they come up and they consume the attractive and plump uh, cows. And then Pharaoh wakes. Well, shortly after that, in verse 5, he falls asleep. He dreams a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, here's a, here's a healthy stalk of grain. It's, it's representative of the healthiest. It's, it's representative of, of prosperity. It's representative of the, the... This is a healthy crop here, a prosperous crop. And verse 6, Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted, by the east wind. 
I'd mentioned that a moment ago. The east wind, if, if we lived in this culture, we would need no commentary on the east wind. It's a real dry, hot wind that blows through uh, that area. It's so dry, it's so hot that it's devastating to plant life. It can destroy plant life. And uh, east wind uh, can be very, very destructive. And, and the Lord uses the east wind as a metaphor, actually, in, in Hosea's prophecy towards the end of Hosea. It's maybe second to the last chapter, if memory serves me right. The east wind is used to describe the Assyrians who are God's rod of judgment, if you will. They're like the east wind. Uh, this east wind is very, very uh, destructive. And here, this second, um, this second uh, seven ears of corn are blighted uh, by the east wind. Uh, verse 7, the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. Now, you'll notice something familiar in verse 8. Uh, in the morning, his spirit is troubled. And we can remember that. That was, that was the situation with the cupbearer and the baker, wasn't it? After they'd had their dreams, what were they like the next day? Uh, they were troubled. Um, you know, we have dreams all the time, and we normally don't think much about them. And I, I spoke about dreams a couple weeks ago. You know, a lot of times we don't remember them. We'll have them, we'll wake up, we'll remember them for a little bit, then after that they're forgotten. But the Lord is behind these dreams. And the Lord sends this troubling uh, spirit, if you will, about this. Their spirits are troubled. They're, 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 there's all this inner tumult, if you will, concerning this, this dream. And Pharaoh's no different. Here we see in verse 8, his spirit is troubled. Now, whatever he had on his uh, agenda that morning, whatever it is, he clears his schedule. Notice what he does. He calls for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And there's something amazing going on right here. There's something very amazing going on here. You remember two weeks ago that I was talking about this whole cast of characters, this cast of professionals. They were professional dream interpreters, dream counselors that used to be in the employment of these ancient kings. We find them here under Pharaoh's employment. We find them in the book of Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar's employment. And these, the ancients put a lot into dreams, and they'd have these dreams, and they would whistle for these, these, uh, uh, these worldly wise men, if you will, to use John Bunyan's, uh, uh, John Bunyan's language. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, he talks about Pilgrim coming into uh, the presence of a certain worldly wise man. Um, after you read that, it's hard to read this stuff and not think about Bunyan's, uh, Bunyan's allegory there. The worldly wise men, we see them all around us. They're alive and well today. You'll find them everywhere. And it's not that they're not helpful. Sometimes they are helpful. If they were never helpful, Pharaoh would be rid of them. And he's not going to spend any money on these guys if they're never helpful. But one thing about these characters is they never keep their mouths shut. Not one of them, ever. Until here. Notice, their mouths are shut. I think this is, 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 this is just as miraculous as the dreams that God has given Pharaoh. He, he strikes them dumb. <laughs> They're unable to make a sound. They're unable to speak. Surely these guys are clever enough that they could have said something about these dreams, and it would have been open-ended enough that it could have turned out about any way possible, and they wouldn't have been implicated in being wrong at all. That's what these guys do. That's their livelihood. That's their vocation. They're very good at it. 
And I'll tell you, there's lots of them running around even today. But here, eh, we're unable to make a sound. They can't, even, they can't even speak. I think this is amazing. What do you suppose that does to Pharaoh when they can't tell him? The fact that he can't, that they, if they could come in and tell him something, they would give him some relief. But the fact they can't speak, they, don't, they, they can't interpret the dream. What do you suppose that does to Pharaoh? Oh, that sends his anxiety right out the top, man. It actually makes Pharaoh somewhat dangerous, actually, at this point. Uh, he has a lot of power and not a whole lot of accountability with that power. Uh, so this, this makes him a bit dangerous here. In verse 9, the chief cupbearer breaks the silence. And you could almost imagine, I mean, probably the last thing he wants to be bringing up right now was those offenses a couple years ago. <laughs> I think that's the last thing you would, uh, you know, uh, there was this, you remember the, uh, yeah, that, we were in jail. Um, I think that's about the last thing he wants to bring up, especially at this time when, you know, Pharaoh's getting a little bit, you know, he's kind of a little bit, um, I don't know. I mean, no one was able to answer him, and he don't like that. Um, he don't like paying people who can't do the job. Follow me? What good are you guys? Well, he, he, he steps in. He says, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Then in verse 11, we dreamed the same night. And you know the story. They had their dreams. Verse 12, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him. He interpreted our dreams. He gave an interpretation to each of us. In verse 13, he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. In other words, what, what is Cupbearer saying? Well, we had these dreams when we were in jail. And this young Hebrew, he, we, we told him our dreams, both of us, myself and the baker. And he interpreted the dreams, and it came to pass just like he said it would. Well, what's, what's Pharaoh's reaction? Well, first order of business, notice it. Pharaoh, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly, notice that, they quickly, you better believe they quickly, they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. You imagine Joseph there, he's going through his duties, you know, just going through life, you know, just going through the task. It's just a normal old day. You wake up, start going through your things, and all of a sudden these guys show up, you know. It's like the guys in the black SUVs, you know. They show up and they skid to a stop and out they come, you know, and we've come to take you away. You know, it's one of those kind of moments, you know. Um, off he goes. And I, I think we see a little bit of the of the suffering that Joseph has endured when when we see that when he um, had shaved himself and changed his clothes. Now, of course, there's one aspect about this governments whenever you're called and summon to the highest official in any government, you're, you're, you're probably almost always going to be given instructions on the proper etiquette to go in to speak to that official. It doesn't really make any difference who the official is. Our country is the same way. If you're ever invited to the Oval Office, you're going to be given some instructions on how to go in there and how to uh, address whoever the president is. It makes no difference who the president is. Uh, and this is no different. Here we see this. Uh, here he shaves himself, he changes his clothes, and he's brought in before Pharaoh. Now, you imagine his head spinning. And in verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it 
I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, and I'll tell you, I'm not able to get past this. This is absolutely amazing, the way that Joseph answers this question. It's amazing because it reminds me of somebody else. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That's amazing. Who is Joseph in front of? One of the most powerful men in the world. I, I have read that from reporters, and this is sometimes from reporters who are hostile towards whoever the sitting president is. And I've also heard re interviews where reporters have who, who were hostile towards whoever the sitting president was. And they had in their notebook, they're ready. They have all these questions. Uh, they've got all these questions that they're going to ask and they're going to hit the president with. And then they go into that Oval Office and they say there is just something about being in that office that just shuts you up right now. And it's really the way it should be. Uh, what is it? The scriptures teach us that all authority is ordained by God. It's all ordained by Romans 13. Read that this afternoon. It's all ordained by God. And there's something, it doesn't matter who the sitting president is, it doesn't matter who, but something about going into that office. This is where Joseph is. He's in uh, Egypt's equivalent of the Oval Office. And I find it personally that when you're in the presence of people who have a lot of authority, it's more difficult to share the gospel than it is when you're in the presence of somebody who's your equal. Have you had that experience? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's easier to shut your lips when you're in the presence of someone who has a lot of authority. Oh. Here Joseph is. Pharaoh asked Joseph. He says to him, I've heard it said of you, you can interpret dreams. Joseph answers Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, Pharaoh continues. Pharaoh, verse 17, said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out, fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven cows. He adds this detail, verse 21, But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. Verse 22, I also saw in my dream seven years growing on one stalk, full and good, seven years withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin years swallowed up the seven good years. And I told it to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. Now, notice Joseph's response. He doesn't disappoint. Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, don't, don't read past that too quickly. What is Joseph saying to Pharaoh? Pharaoh, who really was regarded by many as a god himself. And a lot of pharaohs really kind of liked that. What is Joseph saying? 
Joseph is saying, God is revealing to you what God is about to do. Implied in that everywhere is you are not sovereign. God is sovereign. You can almost imagine the, the, the counselors and everybody. Joseph's not alone in the room with Pharaoh. There's people around. And you can imagine the counselors going, oh boy. Joseph, do you really want to push your patience? you want to wear thin on, on him right now? The doctrine of the sovereignty of God has never been a doctrine that the fallen human heart has liked. A lot of times we think, well, they don't like it today. You know, today is a doctrine. Nobody likes authority. Nobody likes the sovereignty of God today. That is all true. They didn't like it yesterday either. The fallen human heart has never liked this stuff. The fallen human heart goes like this. Listen, ah, Jesus, you want to be out there, you do whatever it is that, that you do. You do what Jesus is doing. You do your thing. I'm going to be down here and I want to do my thing. And that I can turn to you anytime I want and have all the blessings that you have anytime I want. And I can do whatever I want. You're just sitting up there and you're just, you know, you just love to bless me, but it's all up to me. That's what the fallen human heart wants to believe. But the suggestion, no, more than a suggestion, the truth that God is sovereign and you can't come to him anytime you please. You can't walk into his council anytime you please anymore and you can stroll into the White House anytime you please. You have to be summoned. You have to be called. And when you're called, you better show up. And there's an etiquette in my court. Oh, that's, 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 that's like nails down a chalkboard to the fallen human heart, isn't it? But that's, that's who God is. Be, be appraised. That's who God is. That's who he is. And he needs to be treated as such. And if Joseph says to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. Now notice verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He's pressing that again, isn't he? There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt, but after them there will be arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. In other words, what's he saying is the plump cows, that great looking, uh, uh, those great looking ears of grain, they're symbolic, they're indicative that there's going to be seven years of prosperity in the land of Egypt. But following it is going to be seven years of famine. It is going to be so significant and so terrible that you're not even going to recall those good times. It's going to be that bad. And in verse 32, something really interesting is said by Joseph. He says the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. The doubling of the dreams. You read that and you think, well, you know something? Come to think about it, the dreams are coming in pairs, aren't they? 
Pharaoh has two dreams. There were two dreams in prison. They were given to two different men, but there were two dreams in prison. And we can think back to Genesis 37 where Joseph himself has how many dreams? He has two dreams, doesn't he? This thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. The now is not sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, the, the verses 33 and onward are a bit amazing because Pharaoh hasn't summoned Joseph to, to instruct him in matters of Egyptian policy. <laughs> he wants to know what the dreams mean. But notice how, G, how, how Joseph just keeps right on cruising in verse 33, and he, pres, he presents a proposal for the policy of Egypt for the next seven years. <laughs> Could you imagine strolling in the office and, and just presenting the policy for the United States for the next seven years here. This is what Joseph does. Verse 33, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming out. Store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. Let them keep it, that the food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. What he's presenting, what he's proposing is a 20% tax on the people of Egypt. That's what he's proposing. And this 20% tax is to be put um, away for the next seven years so that there will be a storehouse to draw upon for the seven years famine. That's what he's being proposed in verse 37, another thing, amazingly. It's amazing that Pharaoh doesn't say, okay, Joseph, we didn't call you here to tell us how to do our jobs. We called you here to interpret our dreams. Uh, that's not what Pharaoh does. We're told that the proposal pleased Pharaoh. The heart of the king really is in the Lord's hands. Amen? This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 38, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is, no, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people and shall order themselves as you command. Only in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. It's interesting that Pharaoh recognizes two traits about Joseph. What are those two traits? One is the Spirit of God. Two is the wisdom of God. Had Joseph not handled himself the way he did, all he would have seen is Joseph. But Joseph didn't handle himself that way. Joseph presented his Lord every step of the way so that what Pharaoh saw was the Spirit of God in Joseph and the wisdom of God in Joseph. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to ask a question here that I asked of chapter, what was it, 39, I think. Yeah, chapter 39, when Joseph was enduring the temptations of Potiphar's wife over and over again, I had one point, said, Joseph, how do you do it? I mean, let's ask that question again. Joseph, how do you do it? I mean, let's think about it. Joseph has been in prison for the last two years, right? How long was he in prison be before that? He was in there long enough to gain the respect of the prison keeper and for the prison keeper to put him in charge of everything. That would take, I don't know how long that would take. I couldn't see that happening in a short 
wouldn't it take a year? Wouldn't you think a year would be at least? Um, I think at a minimum he's been in this pit for three years. How long was he with Pharaoh? Or with Potiphar, rather? Uh, some significant time. We know from the end of chapter 41 that Joseph is 30 years old right now. As he is conversing with Pharaoh, he is currently 30 years of age. We know from Genesis uh, 37, I think it's 37, that there Joseph is 17 years of age. Now, what has the last 13 years of Joseph's life been like? Into the pit, off to Egypt, to Potiphar's house, back into the pit, and now here before Pharaoh. Awful circumstances. Suffering, much of which we don't even read about. Um, I, I mean, we do read about Joseph being in a pit while he listens to his brothers, 10 of his brothers discuss whether they're going to murder him or sell him off. Uh, awful suffering. What's the future look like? Does Joseph, as he's in jail, does he have any prospects of ever getting out of jail? What does that future look like? And that's what makes this so amazing is that when he's summoned before Pharaoh, what would you be expecting him to do? You'd be expecting him to do whatever he could to try to get out of jail, wouldn't you? But that's really not what we find Joseph doing. And we'll ask ourselves, Joseph, how, how, how does this work? It works this way. Joseph treasures above all else the Lord. And it reminds us of somebody. Remember I said it a little bit ago. This, I can't get past verse 16 because it reminds me of someone. Who does it remind me? It reminds me of Jesus. Jesus says, my, my, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him sent me. Most famously, Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, as he's staring down the cross, as he's staring down the fact that he is going to have to endure the wrath of the Father, he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's some other way, if there's some other way, take this cup from me. But how does Jesus, in terms of his humanity, how does he go through with it? How does he go through it? Same way Joseph is going through this. It's because the Lord is his treasure. His greatest treasure is the Lord. That's how he is able to do this. The message here this morning is not go out and be like Joseph. You know, this morning I was focusing on my message and I was thinking, okay, if I do this, this, and this, what's going to be the residual message? I'm always concerned about the residual message. What is the residual message? It's the message you leave with through those doors. I don't want you to leave through those doors and say, hey, you know, we need to go out and be like Joseph. That wouldn't be a bad thing if we all went out and we're like Joseph. That, that would be a great thing. But that's not, the, that's not the message. The message is that Joseph was overcome by the beauty, the faithfulness, the grace, the mercy, the power. All of the attributes of God consumed him. And they so consumed him that they actually consumed his circumstances. They overtook his suffering. He was okay with putting his future in the Lord's hands. Why? Because he has the pearl of great price. And that 
that, that this, this so typifies Jesus. That's what Jesus was on about. What was Jesus on about? He was on about the Father. So I, I submit to you that we can handle awful, awful circumstances as we treasure the Lord above all things. It's the first point I want to make. I can say this from personal, firsthand experience, that as our eyes are upon the Lord and we're treasuring Him more than we're treasuring anything else, our circumstances are our circumstances. But the oppressive nature of our circumstances lose a lot of their grip on us as we are consumed with the Lord. When you take your eyes off of the Lord, you're like Peter getting out of the boat in a storm-tossed sea because Jesus is walking on the waters. Come on, Peter, you want to come out and join me? Peter comes out, takes a couple steps, takes his eyes off the Lord. What happens? He sinks till a strong hand grabs him. We can handle circumstances as we treasure the Lord more than we treasure anything else. And the same thing goes for suffering, doesn't it? It doesn't take the suffering away, nor does it take the circumstances away. God may take them away. Some of us are in circumstances we'd like to change. I mean, you tell me this. Sometimes you tell me this as you're going down the steps. It's the last thing you say when you leave here. You talk about your circumstances and how you want them to change. God may change them. He might not. But if we treasure the Lord with all of our heart, they will lose a lot of their oppressive grip on us. Same thing with suffering. And how about the future that everybody's so anxious over? What's amazing in verse 16 is Joseph is not thinking about his future. He's not thinking about his future. I mean, <laughs> he is surrendering his future and the fate of his future completely in the Lord's hands, isn't he? You think the counselors would have had the, 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 for lack of a better word, the brass to do this? It's because they are not putting their future in the Lord's hands. That's where the anxiety comes from. A lot of times, here's, here's what happens. The Lord is not our treasure. Something else is. And whatever that something else is, that's the way we want things to work out. If my career is my treasure, then we want things to work out that are good for our career. And we're unwilling to put our future in the Lord's hands. Oh, we, we would like our future to be in the Lord's hands so long as the Lord makes our career and brings our dreams to fruition. Because what really, is God, what really has our heart is not the Lord, it's our dreams. If your dreams have your heart, then you're not going to be able to entrust your future to the Lord. You can't entrust your future to the Lord if your dreams really have your heart whatever those dreams might be. Many of you know, I mean, I've been, I've been in love with guitars for a long, 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 long time. And I was reading an interview earlier this week of an extraordinary guitar player. This, 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 I, I had the opportunity to hear him play um, a, a while back. And this man is tremendous. And he'd come out with an album recently that's very curious. And the name of the album is Redemption. And the interviewer was talking to this guitar player about that title. He's like, there's something curious about that title. Could you say something about the title? And um, I didn't read what I was hoping to read as this man spoke about uh, redemption, unfortunately. And I thought to myself, you know, sometimes 
the worst thing that can happen to us is for our worldly, selfish ambition, dream, ambitious dreams to come true. That's the worst thing that can happen to us. Because like cement, it can just bury us in unbelief. Now, I don't say this to, to, to judge this guitarist or to condemn this guitarist. He's 10 years younger than me. He's got lots of time, hopefully, to reconsider his positions. And I pray that he will. They don't come to see redemption. But my point here is, if, you're, if, if, you're, if, if your dreams have your heart, you will not be able or even willing to put your future in the Lord's hands. All you will want is the Lord to make your dreams true. And that's enslaving and that's where our culture is. And that's going to create a lot of anxiety and a lot of disappointment. Because guess what? For most of us, our dreams do not come true, do they? In fact, for most of us, how do our lives really turn out? I could have never imagined if someone would have told me when I was 22 years old that I would be marching through Hancock County knocking on doors for the assessor's office. I would never could have imagined such a thing. That's the way our lives are, isn't it? What's the counsel here? Trust the Lord with all your heart. And then you'll be able to give Him your future. And guess what? You'll be okay with that. Lord, whatever you have for me, whatever is next, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. One more. You got an appetite for one more? What about prosperity? How are we going to handle prosperity? Good question, huh? We can handle prosperity. Is there a way to handle prosperity to give away everything and to not have nothing? Go into a monastery? No. The same thing applies. We can handle prosperity as long as we treasure the Lord above all things. If you've got something in your life that is saying, it's just, it's, it's presenting itself to you as a weakness, and if this something is in your life, and it's competing with the Lord, then it needs to be gotten rid of. Or at least until such time that, you can, that you've, you've, you've grown in enough grace that you can handle it. But it needs to be gotten rid of. We can handle prosperity, and this is where we're going to be going here in Genesis 41. Because Joseph really is a rags-to-riches kind of story, isn't it? Those of you who know the, how it turns out, like a snap of a finger, literally rags to riches. How do we handle prosperity? The same thing is true. And the message here is to see that the Lord who works in Joseph, who has transformed Joseph, who has become Joseph's treasure over all things, is to be our treasure as well. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. The story of Joseph, this uh, amazing um, 
response that we see of Joseph that points us to our Lord and Master, Christ Jesus. Well, Father, as we see Joseph in operation, it reminds us so much of seeing Jesus in operation. And Joseph is in micro what Jesus is in macro. Oh, Father, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, Father, by revealing yourself more and more and more. That, Father, as we see you clearer and clearer and clearer, whether it be through these messages, through our personal reading, through our worship, through all of the means of grace you've given us, through the sacraments, Father, we would come to treasure you above all things. Well, Father, we respect that as we treasure you above all things, we too will be able to handle the awful, even awful, dreadful circumstances. Suffering. We'll be able to put our future into your hands, whatever that future is. And we'll be able to handle prosperity as it comes and even handle it as it goes. So, Father, we ask that, Lord, you would open our eyes ever more, that we would see you ever clearer. Father, we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.